0: Baseball fans,
2: Welcome to the worst happenings here ever, bastards pod <laughs> shit. I'm Robert Evans. Um, this is It Could Happen Here, a daily podcast about the fact that everything seems to be falling apart, and wouldn't it be nice if uh, we tried to, to do something better than the stuff that's falling apart? That seems like a good idea. Huh. Do you agree with me, my my panel for today's episode?
5: Yes, I agree with that general concept.
2: That's Garrison Davis and and who else is agreeing with me today? Is uh, that Christopher Wong is Is that Christopher Wong?
1: Mildly agreeing. Mildly yes. agreeing.
2: Mildly agreeing. Wow. Well, that's extra <laughs> disturbing because you 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 you're in charge of of today's episode. So, in brief, when we did our first so, you know, if you're new to the show, come back, check out the first five episodes of the show. They're scripted evergreen kind of lay out a philosophy on uh the the crumbling of society and what to do next. But one of the questions we had is OK, it kind of seems like one of the only ways potentially forward uh, without just accepting that everything's going to keep falling apart is some sort of big general strike that forces action on, you know, things like uh, climate that are, are we can't really wait on anymore. And of course, one of the big questions is, well, all right, you get a bunch of people to agree to strike. How do you agree what to do with the strike? How do you agree what like the terms are? You know, how do you how do you put together a list of demands? How do you get millions of people to to agree to a list of demands and then fight the government in order to institute those demands? Um, And I don't know the answer to that question, um, but there are some people uh, in the world right now who did a version of that uh, in Hong Kong. And today we're going to talk with someone who can talk to us about that process and hopefully kind of give us some insight both in how it it worked and what didn't work over there. And that might inform us on uh, what, what we might do here someday in the future. Uh, if you know that that'd be nice, maybe. Did I get it right, Chris? Yeah, yeah, is, yeah, that's good enough. Thank um, you for that ringing endorsement of my introduction.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you know, okay. So, 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 to 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 work more of this out, um, I've brought in JN, who is a writer, researcher, and organizer with the Laosong Collective. Um, he's currently based out of Los Angeles. And, J.N., okay, do do you want to talk? A little bit about what laosan is and then also talk a bit about how you know for for people who've sort of forgotten or weren't paying attention at the time how the the hong kong protest started
6: yeah sure uh thanks thanks for having me excited to be here and, and to talk about this kind of stuff because i've been wanting to kind of you know talk about this and discuss the way things have gone uh with the protest for a while um it's been hard to find the time i guess with our cascading crises and whatnot, um, but yeah. So I guess Laosan, I'll, I'll speak briefly about Laosan since you know I'm not speaking on behalf of the collective in this interview, but just kind of like um, talking about how we started and then everything else after that is, is kind of just my view of things. Um, so Laosan has members with kind of like different leftist orientations, um, from you know anarchist to more social democratic, um, and you know it's been a, kind of a lot to work through as you can imagine, but I think it also, that also kind of reflects the necessity of our political condition, um, which is that there really, you know, in my view, there hasn't really been any internationalist groups that focus on Hong Kong from those different perspectives. Um, at least for me, when I was growing up, um, most of the kind of like radical Hong Kong folks that I knew would tend to just be, uh, you know, we would join different We would join other movements and and stuff like that. Like there was never anything that was Hong Kong centered, Um, and I guess stuff in the diaspora uh, is pretty conservative. All you know, the diasporic folks that I grew up with uh, were were pretty conservative. So there wasn't that that kind of avenue for organizing, unlike other kind of Asian diaspora groups. Like uh, Filipinox folks have like this kind of very long history of radical diasporic organizing, and I don't really think Hong Kong has had that ever. So. I think that's why Laosan is this kind of very broad tent, uh, big umbrella type of org where we try, where we do kind of collect a lot of folks who are you know, progressive, left-leaning to, to, to otherwise. Um, and, but I, 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 I guess our general orientation is the kind of neither Washington nor Beijing line uh, with, with varying degrees of general anti-statism in the mix. Um, and I think, you know, I'm hopeful that this is helping to build the foundation for more of that in the Hong Kong diaspora and then hopefully in the broader Asian diaspora as I see it since, I think the general divide tends to be kind of like, you know, radical Asian folks will be anti-US imperialists, which is great, but then specifically do that by expressing support for states elsewhere and, yep. yeah. um, you know, that can, that can take yeah. good uh, forms and bad forms and whatnot, so... Um, And I guess just really quick, we we do both kind of organizing and writing and translation. Those are kind of the three uh, pillars of the group, I guess, and the the bedrock of our work is really kind of aiming to create international solidarity with leftists around the world to kind of amplify leftist voices in Hong Kong, uh, but then also kind of create non-state centered connections across Asia, Southeast Asia, and the Pacific.
2: Yeah, and how do you... I mean, I I think one of the big questions that that keeps coming to me over and over again is how do you overcome the um how do you overcome the resistance to internationalism that's caused by kind of I don't know conspiracism may not be exactly the right way to frame it but this belief that you know your your struggle for liberation is really just a, a CIA op or whatever like this 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 case of brainworms that keeps uh, that that I see is a major barrier towards you know kind of functional internationalism in a lot of cases, particularly within the United States. Um, what are some ways in which you you've actually seen some luck in combating that?
6: Yeah, I mean that's that's really the million dollar question, I think, which is like you know I, I think if we had figured it out, it wouldn't be an issue. Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, it's growing, right? The the problem's actually yeah. growing, so in many ways. It from one view could say that it's we haven't been very successful in combating that, but I think in some you know some of the leading groups in that camp, you know the campus, uh, I think are very well funded and they have very powerful connections.
2: When you say campus, could you explain that term briefly because I don't think it's something it's certainly not something we've talked about on the show, and I think a lot of our listeners probably wouldn't be familiar with that.
6: Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I'm sure Chris could speak much more about this. I feel like you have your expertise is is kind of in explaining these uh, very kind of deep left uh, traditions and whatnot. But I guess my understanding is is just very generally that campus will, um, you know, it's like the anti-imperialism that um, sees the US as the kind of number one uh, enemy and everything kind of is is you know they're the primary contradiction I guess to use some Maoist terminology um, and that everything must be subordinated to that to that cause of like being against the US Empire. Um, and usually that requires supporting what they see as uh, you know abbreviate as A as actually existing socialism uh, states that kind of use that, that are nominally socialist, nominally communist um, and use all the kind of like imagery and trappings of that. Um, to kind of like hold, maintain that uh, political identity despite the kind of material reality of their politics and their economy and, and all that. So um, yeah, I can tell more about that later maybe, but I, I think one thing that I, I've been chatting with a lot of my kind of like uh, radical Asian friends who are, you know, I, I am very kind of obviously against these campus because they are so virulently uh, against Hong Kong. But, you know, other folks that I've talked to have, have said, you know, they, they, they really kind of understand that viewpoint in the sense that it's a very emotional attachment, right? It's like folks for, you know, folks, let's, let's say Vietnamese folks who uh, their families were refugees and uh, had to come to the U.S. Uh, because of the Vietnam War, for example, then, you know, when, when you're the child of refugees and you're like, why the hell am I here in America? And then you start to kind of like learn about the history and background of what happened, then it makes sense that you would have this kind of very emotional attachment to uh, AES, these actually existing socialist states, um, and those histories and those those radical anti-imperial histories and whatnot, despite the fact that, you know, clearly history has shown that they have either betrayed their own movements or gone down in defeat and, and whatnot, which, you know, I think there's two ways to react to that. One is to kind of... Cl- continue to cling to the fantasy, and then one is to try and figure out what's next, right? It's like, how can we either revive that or continue that in in the, the ways that make sense in this world, right? And so I think, you know, I guess to answer the initial question, I think it is a little bit easier to, for especially for like young, newly radicalized Asian folks, it's a little bit easier to uh, maintain that fantasy. And then, you know, I think, the way that media uh, you know social media and online media has gone nowadays it's like it's becoming distilled into like the most simple and understandable like nuggets of that so like infographics and stuff like that so I feel like that entire ecosystem uh tries to make it so that people do stay within that fantasy rather than trying to do the harder work of like how do we extrapolate this or how do we adapt this to our conditions now
1: yeah, and I think you know I can talk about this for a little, like a brief amount because I don't want to spend too much time. <laughs> yeah, talking about these people, but you know, I, I like I think like like one way to look at them is so so campism is a thing from from the Cold War, right? It's basically like okay, you pick you pick one of your like two maybe three camps you got the online movement. It's like okay, you're either with the Soviets or with you're with the Americans, right? And you know, part part of what's happening here is it's like that that's a very easy way to look at the world. And this is this is why it's so easy to sort of like condense it into infographics, right? It's like there's two sides. One of them's good. One of them's bad. But you know, this is like the, the thing that's that's sort of the problem here is that the Cold War is over. Like it's it's done. It's 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 gone. Right? The communist countries are gone. None of this stuff. None of this stuff exists anymore. And so, you know, and it's it's very easy, particularly particularly for for the diaspora to sort of get stuck sucked. It's like back into this politics where, well, oh, okay, well, well no no no, hold on. There's a new Cold War. The Cold War is happening again. It's all the same stuff and you can just sort of like tack all the same symbols back on. But, you know, it leads you to down these paths where, you know, and this is like like something JN I think has has dealt with a lot, which is like, you know, when 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 the protests start happening in Hong Kong, all these people are like, oh, this is all the CIA. And it's like, not at all. It's you know, it's, it's sort of Yeah, so it's they 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 come to see this world in a way that's sort of purely conspiratorial and purely, sort of, based in this old Cold War stuff that just doesn't exist anymore.
2: Yeah, I think part of the problem is that there's been this consistent failure, and this isn't even really a left or right issue. This is like an, a, 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 a a a culture issue in in kind of how to refer to places that are outside of the US or sort of you know in the the old days the the USSR's influence block like you have terms like third world and now global south and all of them are really um bad <laughs> bad, bad terms yep. for kind of, and i'm i'm we're, we're going to try to have Joey Iu bond soon but i have come to like the term the periphery to refer to those states that are kind of outside of or at least kind of mingling influences from those you know the major power blocks um and i, I but it's it is um it, it, I think has led to this, that kind of binary thinking, kind of the, the failure to, I think the complexity of the actual global geopolitical situation leads to a failure leads to kind of a rejection of that complexity in which everything boils down to either pro or anti um, uh, socialism or whatever, on a lot of people's heads. And I I don't think that is a particularly good framework for making good decisions.
6: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that, that, Piece by Joey is really amazing, um,
2: yeah, yeah.
6: And yeah, I think you. Know, I think the reason you know a lot of times uh, folks are just kind of like, well, you know, these these campus, these tankies, or whatever, is just like they have no real world impact. So like, just don't bother. Uh, you know, don't don't spend too much time arguing with them or whatever. But I guess the part that really bothers me about all that is, I think what you're kind of just saying, Robert, is like it, it's reducing the complexity of places outside the U.S. so much that it's dehumanizing, right? It's just mm-hmm. like. People in Hong Kong uh, aren't full humans to these people because they see, it's like the CIA can just kind of parachute one or two people in and lead like a two million person march, right? As if Hong Kong people have no political agency of their own uh, or, you know, (laughs) understandings of how complex their own situation is, right? just this kind of inter-imperial entanglement that they're stuck in. So, you know, there's this book called Nothing Ever Dies by uh, Viet Tan Nguyen that I would really recommend folks read. And I I wish a lot of these folks would read it too, because, you know, his, he, he's talking about memory in the Vietnam war, but I think the, the thing that really stuck out to me in that, in that framework that he develops is like, you know, everyone is capable of doing right and wrong. And, uh, it's, it's the, the way that we remember things like the Vietnam war, for example, there are always good and bad sides, uh, that people, um, each side will deploy those different types of memory in order to like villainize others and uh, lionize themselves, right? And then so I guess you know, he sees the true task as being able to recognize um, the agency of all of us to do good and bad. Um, and that, that earned him a lot of hate within the Vietnamese community, I think, right? Because uh, you're encouraged to, you know, in Southern California, you're encouraged to be uh, very anti-communist in, in you know, Orange County, that, that community because that's the Southern Vietnamese diaspora. And then, uh, you know, people in Vietnam saw him as, as still kind of like this this compromised person who lives in the US, uh, the Vietnamese diaspora. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, no way to win there. And I, I think there's a lot of resonance with that in the Hong Kong diaspora as well.
5: The hottest games, right from Vegas, and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at HighFiveCasino.com.
1: High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at HighTheNumberFiveCasino.com.
4: High Five Casino. Glow with your best skin. Be confident in your skin. Be brave in your skin. With Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash, cover your skin in layers of rich moisturizers and vitamin B3 complex, transforming your skin from dry and dull to moisturized and smooth in just 14 days. Feel the best in your skin and glow with confidence, all pride. Olay Body is a proud sponsor and supporter of iHeartRadio and PNG's Can't Cancel Pride, raising funds and support for the LGBTQ community. Olay Body wants you to feel empowered to live with confidence in your own skin, not just all month, but all year long. And when you feel the best in your skin, you can do anything. So this pride, glow with confidence with the help of Olay Body. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer. Happy Pride!
3: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop.
2: I kind of want to move us along, if I can, to actually talking about um, the five demands and sort of the 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 process by which, first off, like how, you know, and, and this is a thing that like a lot of people who marched in the streets during the, um, the Black Lives Matter protests last year, the uprisings, whatever you want to call them, um, we kind of kept running into this wall of, well, what do we, what do we want? And a lot of folks were like, well, we want no police, but also a lot of folks were like, well, we just want to defund or we just want to reform the police. And even some of the, those folks were like, "Well, we want to reform the police by giving them more money and they'll hopefully kill less people. Like, and it was, it was, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to speak in broad here, right? There were different local kind of movements and, and organizations that were more specific, but you had this tremendous amount of energy, unprecedented amount of energy out in the streets um, but you did not have concerted demands. I think the anger was pretty concerted. I think everybody was more or less pissed about the right things. But there was not. We there was at no point did did we come together. I think in a a, a meaningful way on a big enough scale to to force uh, to to force into the mainstream a very specific set of demands. Um, and that's not even really a criticism. It's just a, an acknowledgement of the reality. Right. Um, whereas in Hong Kong, I think one of the things that was really successful was the messaging, the, the way that kind of the messaging of the movement united around these initially five demands, um, which I, I think was very successful. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, first off, how did that come about?
6: It it really did kind of take center stage very quickly, I think. And I think some people maybe were a little bit surprised by that, but, um, it did, I think it you know it really kind of crystallized around because you know the, the big protests happened kind of like june 9th june 8th june 9th uh, in 2019 um and it was just like millions of people on the street and you know i the 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 2019 protests were so singular in many ways like it was the biggest political mobilization in hong kong history um and that had been kind of just like boi- been boiling for the past like decade before that and I think it was just the atmosphere was was kind of like crystallized in the sense that everyone, like just everyone was scared of what the CCP was going to do next. And I think that created this kind of uh, common understanding for people to come together very quickly and easily around these uh, these five demands. And, you know, on June, uh, June 12th was when there was like the first really big escalation of police brutality. Um, and people were kind of like... You know, police kettled people inside buildings and then tear gassed them, which was just like the most outrageous thing. And, you know, a lot of Hong Kongers either were formerly not, they didn't really care much about politics or they didn't really care much about uh, police violence because, you know, that's been going on for a very long time against marginalized people in in Hong Kong. But I think just uh, the fact that it happened to these certain set of protesters, um, non-violent protesters at that time, Um, that was one of the really big kind of like breaking points. And then on June 15th, there was a, there was a protester called Marco Lung, and he had set up on a scaffolding at the top of a, like a really tall shopping mall, uh, in this yellow raincoat. And he had a banner, uh, that had some of these demands on the banner. Um, and then, you know, eventually he, he fell off the scaffold and died. And that was really kind of like, you know, wake up call to a lot of people about how dire, people were feeling about this. So there, there was a lot of emotion behind it that allowed people to come together um, around these five demands, you know, so like full withdrawal of the bill, retraction of the characterization that the protests were riots, amnesty for, for arrested protesters, um, establishment of, you know, some com- commission into police abuse, and then uh, Carrie Lam resigning and universal suffrage. So it was, it's, it's a really interesting set of five demands. And I think, I guess to get to your question, I think it runs the gamut between like very doable to not so doable, I guess. Right. Like uh, the universal suffrage one, I think is like, you know, that's there because that's been the demand uh, from Hong Kongers for like a very long time, at least a decade before that. So uh, but then, you know, I think that's not, I I don't think anyone ever really thought that was going to, happen. The government was never going to concede to that. But, uh, you know, the very first demand for withdrawal of the bill was very doable, and it did end up happening uh, very soon after the death of Marco Leung, right? So um, I don't know. I don't know if that helps answer the question a little bit. It's just like the five demands uh, were, were very pragmatic in some ways, but then also aspirational in other ways. And that that gave a lot of different people different avenues to, like, come into it.
2: And there was, like, as I understand, there was, like, an app, right? Like, can we talk a little bit more about, like, the the kind of methods by which... I mean, it, it, was that more for um, actually voting on actions, or was that one of the ways in which demands were kind of uh, arrived at as well?
6: Yeah, so there's... Uh, it wasn't... Uh, I mean, it was Telegram. A lot of people use Telegram yeah. groups, yeah. but, um, you know, LiHKG, which is, like, uh, a... a really popular internet forum i I guess kind of the equivalent is is something like reddit Mm -hmm. um and you know i wouldn't say that they were kind of like the centralized site for for where like decisions were like made and issued from there but it was the kind of most active site where people would go to discuss uh strategy tactics and uh debate things um and you know this might get to some later questions about like the the role of the right wing and all this but I would say that the overall character of the forum was slightly more, you know, right leaning, or at least they were sympathetic to that, to that position, right? So I I think in that way, um, that might be how things eventually like, you know, a year and a half later started moving more towards the right, um, through that forum. Yeah. But there was never like, you know, there was never like, oh, okay, we're going to run a poll and then whatever the decision of this is, that's going to decide what we do tomorrow. Like, it was never that formalized. Um, And, you know, it it was decentralized in the sense that, like, people would discuss what would be the best tactic and then you, you could just, like, split off into, like, affinity groups and then you could choose to follow that if you want the next day or, or, or not. Right. And a lot of times it was like, people would be making these decisions on the fly the day of at the front lines, uh, on those telegram groups and stuff.
2: And how was it that, um, I guess the question I'm trying to answer for myself is like how it, it seems like, you know, for a movement that wasn't it, you know, it, it internally had a lot of ideological diversity and a lot of disagreement. It seems like there was more of a concerted agreement about goals in Hong Kong, um, than I've seen in anything you know uh, uh, stateside in my life, and I'm I'm kind of wondering how that process of consensus, or if I or if I'm even kind of approaching it from the wrong perspective by thinking that there was that wide of consensus. Maybe that's something that just reached out internationally.
6: I guess I I mean I can talk a little bit about kind of like what decentralization meant in Hong Kong and in, in yeah, like the yeah. wider context of like the political culture there because. Like I was saying, like the the protests in twenty nineteen were really singular in the sense that like um, it was like a really big cultural shift from previous political events in Hong Kong. So like occupy the Occupy Central movement in twenty fourteen that morphed into the Umbrella Movement um, was this kind of like seventy nine day occupation of like different parts of the city, but like most notably the central banking areas. And it was it was like very much led by student protest groups, you know, like Joshua Wong and all the all the other people that you would have heard of, um, and then also these kind of like old guard political parties, and they were the ones kind of literally on a stage, kind of like issuing, okay, this is what we should all do. We've we've come to our analysis, and these are the best decisions. And you know, the the umbrella movement was you know, from one perspective, from just kind of the pragmatic perspective of like achieving its goals, like it's just a complete failure, right? It was just 79 days occupation and they were just like swept away by the police. And, but it, you know, I think that the consciousness of what happened, which was just like, we're gonna sit here and then we're gonna have leaders tell us what to do. I think that really kind of affected people uh, when the umbrella movement collapsed and You know, in in that five years afterwards, as the CCP was kind of like ramping up its repression, um, that's what was kind of like the light switch for people was like, we can't replicate this kind of like follow the leader style thing anymore. Um, And, you know, movements before that, too, it was like the Occupy, there was an Occupy Central in 2011 and 2012 as well, you know, obviously to coincide with global Occupy. That was also this kind of like, we're all just going to camp out here at the plaza beneath HSBC headquarters. And um, there was there was kind of like the Occupy Wall Street type of like trying to build consensus and and decision making there. Um, But I think it was so it was like so hemmed in based on the act of occupation um, that that's why, you know, people also learned from that, that. Just, you know, camping out is not really going to do anything in the Hong Kong context. Um, and then that's where all this kind of, like, decentralization, be water, and the the fluidity and all that stuff, that's where that sprang out of.
1: So, so I guess, if if I'm understanding this right, the, the demands kind of had been, like, floating around, and then you have this sort of political consciousness, you have all of this stuff, anger crystallizing, and then is it accurate to say that when Marco Young like fell from the building, like holding the signs like that that's how it sort of like became officialized like the sort of the rage around that like crystallized it into a a thing
6: they were i mean the the demands like existed before that, but I think the when Marco died that's when like that gave a lot of people who were either kind of like um either apathetic or they like didn't really agree or you know, they saw no way to like kind of participate in what became just kind of like, it was just like every, you know, eventually everyone had an avenue into this, into the movement. Um, I think that's what crystallized that. Right. And it made the demands accessible to everyone.
1: So I guess, I guess the question is still sort of like, where did they come from? Like who actually like
6: wrote them? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that would have taken place on the, on LIHKG. Right. And as far as I know, no one there's no like authorship or ownership over them um Hmm. people are anonymous on that forum right so in in that way it's like somewhat like 4chan like um and yeah i mean there was definitely voting on lihkg um and i would assume at some point that happened uh to bring the five demands together yeah
1: So th- there's another thing I think that that watching it from the outside was really interesting about the protest that like very much did like does not happen in the U.S., which was the the way that the sort of more militant factions who are willing to sort of fight the police more like main developed and maintained a, like a working relationship with the the, the not the very nonviolent factions. And in my understanding, if it was just sort of solidifies after the storm of the Legislative Council, um, could could you talk about that a bit more? And like, is, is that actually, like, is that what happened? And how, how did that actually happen? Because that seems like a very important moment and something that just hasn't happened in the U.S.
6: Yeah, I think it's, I mean, the way that that happened, I think was just so, um, like, there were so many factors um, that enabled that to happen because yeah, for the longest time, like, in those previous movements, especially the umbrella um, the umbrella movement, and then in 2016, there was something called the Fishball Riots, which was, like, um, you know, police, were, uh, police and government officials were trying to, like, clear out street vendors uh, because of, like, licensing issues or whatever, and then oh, you know, just a whole bunch of, kind of, like, radical folks, they're kind of, like, independence-leaning uh, folks, politicians and stuff, um, you know, kind of fought back on that and it, it became violent and you know that was that was when the uh, one of the protest uh, luminaries Edward Leung, was was um, he came up with that, that that kind of slogan the Free Hong Kong Revolution of Our Time slogan that's when he was imprisoned after that uh, the the fishball riots but um, so th- there had been this kind of like push and pull or like tension between the the moderates and the. Um, violent militant factions uh, for quite some time. And so I think a lot of people saw the Umbrella Movement and its its kind of non-success as being attributed to the moderates, right? And so there was I think there was a general mood that things had to change. Um, but then I think the fact that I would say, again, the overarching thing that enabled people to come together was this kind of everything has to be against, like, we we have to put everything we have against the CCP, right? So um, there was a lot of kind of, like, power struggle and, like, um, divisiveness uh, during the umbrella movement of people trying to, like, uh, have their view, you know, their political analysis or their strategies and tactics take precedence. And a lot of people saw that as just kind of, like, Pointless squabbling or like divisiveness that uh, the government was able to use to like, um, you know, defeat the movement, right? So I think all those things informed what was happening there. And then there were two kind of like uh, overriding philosophies in the movement. So one was like uh, the idea of like having no big stage, that's what it was called. And so that was like not taking any, uh, not having protest leaders, not having uh, people make the decisions up top. And the second thing was this idiom like called brothers climbing the mountain, um, which basically means like we're all climbing the same mountain of trying to defeat the CCP. Uh, it doesn't matter how we're doing it. So there was this really kind of like uh, the question of method uh, and means was really kind of put into the backseat. It was all just kind of about the end goal. Um, and, you know, there was that kind of related idiom of like not cutting mats, which means like even if you have differences with folks in terms of like how you choose to go about contributing to the movement, uh, you, you never sever ties with people over this. And so those were the two kind of overriding philosophies in the movement. And I think it was definitely very helpful in, in keeping this kind of like movement unity, but it, it definitely had its drawbacks eventually in terms of like decentralization. Uh, I can talk more about that later. Or I can talk about it now. I don't know.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, sorry. I was, yeah, I'm, I'm, I I would like that.
6: So, you know, in terms of decentralization, I think it was, it was just kind of like in the right place at the right time for, for Hong Kongers, I think, you know, they were very fed up with, with all the ways that things had gone before. And so a lot of people were more open to trying this out. And I think the fact that, you know, there was a lot of fear around surveillance, um, and, and whatnot at the time in Hong Kong. And obviously it's gotten much worse, but you know, so everyone, th- there was never really the kind of that overriding fear in the umbrella movement or the occupy movements of like having to stay anonymous or whatever. Uh, whereas here, I guess the fact that it, it just went hand in hand with um, taking more militant actions that a lot of people kind of, I, I think the really interesting part is, is so much of the, what happened in uh, decentralizing, um, you know, the political culture in Hong Kong was that it adopted a lot of uh, leftist tactics, um, you know, obviously like black bloc and stuff, uh, without, you know, I, I think the word leftism or leftist in Hong Kong is like, it's like, you don't touch it, right? Because it's it, there's no way to dissociate it from, Hong, uh, from the CCP in Hong Kongers' minds, which is, it's very topsy turvy, right? Because there's nothing leftist about the CCP as it stands right now. But you, you, it's it's very hard to convince folks there of that. And so it's very interesting the way that people were able to adopt, like, the tactics and strategies without any of the ideological underpinnings to it. Um, and so, you know, the No Big Stage and the uh, Brothers Climbing Mountain, um, that eventually became a way to shut down dissent, right? Because any time people wanted to have, like, principled debate, principled debate or to talk strategy or to question uh, the way things were going then that uh, you know that philosophy would be kind of trotted out and you would be you could be accused of like undermining movement unity and whatnot and you know I think people were so fearful of either being accused of that or of or or of causing that right like I don't think anyone wanted the movement to fragment right but um, people were so averse to doing that that those two philosophies really became a way to silence um, any other thing other than what was dominant uh, in the movement. And that eventually became, you know, the exclusionary xenophobic like pro-Trump thing, you know, in the tail end of, you know, 2020 after COVID and all that stuff. So that's how I see it going down. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And it is this, um, I think there's this problem. You saw versions of it in Ukraine too where as the as a movement kind of predicated on on confronting the government goes on and as the, the, the clashes get more violent, kind of the right wing um picks up influence because those kind of folks tend to be more prepared for the uh for the fighting.
6: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, there's never been any kind of like I don't know. There, there, there's no kind of conclusiveness about the ideology of the frontliners, like the more militant folks. (laughs) Um, But I think there's, there's kind of a general sense that uh, a lot of the frontliners were um, a little bit, if if not right wing, then they were more sympathetic to the, to that, right? Because if they were fired up enough to like, you know, do that kind of street fighting, then likely their their view of china is like you know along the more kind of xenophobic and uh nativist uh wavelength
2: one of the struggles i think is that um you know for the kind, for the goals as they were uh, kind of elucidated of the hong kong movement that could have worked but it also like you know that that would have eventually provided a problem when it came to the whole figuring out uh what to do next thing right like there's only there's, there's kind of a limited extent to which those tendencies can potentially coexist um and it does, it is one of those things you have to think about like if you happen to get a broad movement you know what like again looking at ukraine um there were there's been this kind of very awkward compromise with the far right which is a minority party but like that compromise has led to some very ugly things happening over there including like the arming of a of a kind of a militant neo-nazi movement which is like yeah, and I, I, I don't know, like, it, when you're there in the moment and you're just trying to deal with the state, um, I don't know how you entirely avoid that, right? Because you need frontliners, and if some of those folks believe fucked up shit, but they're going up against the cops, like, what are you going to do?
6: Exactly. And, I mean, I guess it's, I don't think it's any small coincidence that, you know, those, those kind of, like, fascist Ukrainian people showed up at the Hong Kong protests, Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think a lot of the, the frontliners who like took photos with them and stuff had no idea who the hell they were. Right. They're just like, Hey, like I think the the overriding sentiment was like anyone who's, who's going to like show us support is that's good for us because we want this k- kind of global visibility to put pressure on China. That sure, was just sure. ba- how basic it was and very understandable. And, you know, so obviously those images were trotted out all over the, uh, you know, Twitter and stuff to show, okay, well, Hong Kongers are fascists and, and whatnot. But, yeah, I think it's it's much more complex. Like you were saying, it's just, like, when when you're there, what do you do? It's, like, you're not going to uh, stop frontliners while they're fighting the cops to, like, have principled debate, right? And at some point it's just, like, when is that going to happen? And I think the LIHKG as, a, as an internet forum, I think... Um, In some ways, it it could make that very possible, but in other ways, I think it makes it much more difficult, right? Because you're you're having these discussions with anonymous people who don't, you know, obviously, if you're anonymous on a forum, it kind of like gets rid of so many uh, boundaries of like accountability and um, how you would treat each other with respect in a debate uh, about your shared goals and stuff, right, so, you know, I, I think decentralization was very important. To Hong Kong in that moment but I think the right-wing folks you know who are a very small minority I think they were able to instrumentalize those two philosophies very well and manipulate it very well to like position themselves as like the true inheritors of the movement by you know forcing through this idea that they were the ones that were protecting these kind of like sacred principles of like unity movement unity and Uh, no splitting and and all that stuff right and you know I think uh, what I've heard from from leftist folks over there is that you know obviously the left is very marginalized in Hong Kong but what I've heard from leftist folks is that just like no one had the means either the means or, or the heart to fight back against that because I think the conditions just weren't right you know the people were living in such like everyone felt like they were steeped in this daily kind of like extremity that mm-hmm. everything was just like crisis mode. Um, and to ask people to slow down or to like take non-extreme measures w- became extremely difficult. Um, and I can totally understand that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's something, um, I mean, that's something we've seen in Portland too, just this, um, not with the right wing so much, cause there obviously has never been really any collaboration between right and left in the put po- but, but with this kind of, um, If what you're suggesting isn't more extreme than what's been done before, um, then, then why would we listen to it? You know, this, um, which is, I think a product of trauma as much as anything else. And I don't know, like that I think is one of the things you have to solve if you're actually going to like win, um, which obviously, you know, winning is a separate matter altogether. Like we've got, I think there's a lot of lessons in what happened in Hong Kong, um, and one of those lessons is that uh, it's pretty easy for the state to win.
6: Yeah, and I, I forgot to mention this before when we were talking about the five demands, but I guess to, just to jump back really quickly, I mean, there was that there was a sixth demand, right? And, yep. Yep. Um, you know, that uh, that cropped up around October 2nd when, like, a cop shot a teenager with a the live round. And, you know, it cropped up for obvious reasons because of that. Um, in, in protest chants all over the place but that never crystallized into like a quote-unquote official thing, right? Because I mm-hmm. think there was still that kind of barrier to the idea of police abolition uh, for a lot of folks, I guess. And Because it's the, it's the first time, you know, th- this is the only, or I guess this is the time in Hong Kong where the most people have had the most anti-police sentiment in its history, right? Yeah. Um, like 70% of people kind of like disapprove of uh you know how the police conducted themselves or whatever during the protest so um it's i think it's a start i think it's a good place for to like plant the seeds of abolition but i think that that kind of shows the dynamics of like what became official and then what became what couldn't become official in terms of those demands um and i you know because i'm i'm assuming on lihkg uh, it, it's like a closed forum so you can't you can't join and discuss if you don't have like a university address or whatever so that's why I wasn't on there a hong kong university address um, uh, there there was tons of debate there about you know this idea of police abolition but i think it eventually also it, this is kind of a similar thing between the abolish the police or defund the police debate here which is like a lot of people saw the sixth demand as reform like we need to just like fire every single cop uh and then rehire like the entire uh force right and they thought we just need to clean house uh this, like the bad apples thing right and then other people saw that as more like we need to actually confront the practice of policing practice and concept of policing so um i guess because there was that divisiveness over what abolition means uh abolition or reform then yeah that's why it never took root as something official.
4: Glow with your best skin, be confident in your skin, be brave in your skin. With Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash, cover your skin in layers of rich moisturizers and vitamin B3 complex. Transforming your skin from dry and dull to moisturized and smooth in just 14 days. Feel the best in your skin and glow with confidence, all pride. Olay Body is a proud sponsor and supporter of iHeartRadio and PNG's Can't Cancel Pride, raising funds and support for the LGBTQ community. Olay Body wants you to feel empowered to live with confidence in your own skin, not just all month, but all year long. And when you feel the best in your skin, you can do anything. So this Pride, glow with confidence with the help of Olay Body. Check out Olay's new indulgent moisture body wash online or at your favorite retailer. Happy Pride.
3: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop.
0: Baseball fans.
1: I guess there there is one thing, which is that you know we we saw some of this, like spread to the U.S. But the the way that I guess could you talk a bit about how the sort of like the how the like street fighting tactics spread? Because I know I mean, but both both how they were developed inside the movement, and then you know, because like like after that, I mean, I I remember there were these protests in Indonesia in 2019, and like those people were also. You know, they 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 were doing the like water stuff, and that like, formula sort of spread really quickly. But I mean, because I I know also that like there there was, I saw some of these like they they had these like really detailed infographics on like uh like you know this this is how you form people on a line. This is everyone's roles. This is what equipment you need. So how how did that stuff like appear, and was it just spreading on telegram or?
6: Yeah, I think. Um... And I think that's one of the ways, I I guess this kind of connects actually to the very first question, which which is like, how do we confront or like try and deal with this, the campus, which is like, one of the ways we tried to approach it through Laosan was just kind of like this exchange of tactics actually is something that we can share transnationally Um, because obviously states are collaborating in terms of exchanging strategies and weapons and uh, munitions and all that stuff. So we should be kind of collaborating in the same way. And I think that's something that Hong Kong had to offer the world. Um, in terms of how that actually happened, um, it's kind of interesting, right? Because I was saying earlier how I feel like a lot of the protesters adopted Black Bloc without a, uh, adopting any of the ideology. Um, and then maybe it was, I think that seeing that similarity for a lot of folks online, like I think it was it was all like viral videos, right? Um, that people would just encounter on their timelines without any real context of like what the hell was happening in Hong Kong. Uh, you know, seeing seeing like clearly young young kids like putting out tear gas canisters with uh, pylons and, and water and stuff is just like that's something immediately that you learn within thirty seconds that you don't have to like. I don't agree with their aims, or I don't agree with any of that. And um, you know, using the umbrellas to block out security cameras and and all that st- and and tear gas and stuff is just like these things are so portable visually and. Uh, like we were saying before in terms of infographics where there's drawbacks to that, I think it's like the 30 second clip on like TikTok or or Twitter or whatever happens to be. It's like, that is the, the flip side of how social media is actually fucking amazing, right? Because it's just like, you're getting this instant kind of political education and also like street fighting uh, education <laughs> um, just like that. And without, without actually seeking it out, right? Because I think that's the key part. Um, people who might be predisposed to being against what Hong Kong is trying to do or, or what they stand for and that type of thing um, you know falsely or, or otherwise um, might just that that might just like be retweeted onto their timeline and I think that's that's the kind of beautiful thing about Twitter that I really love um, and I, I'm pretty sure that's how it spread I don't uh, you know Laosan tried to put on these these formal exchanges where we would talk more about that um, but I, I'm pretty sure that it all—it was mostly all just viral, yeah. Yeah. Even, I, ma- even mainstream media was picking that stuff up and show, sharing those videos because mm-hmm. they want the clicks and they want the yeah.
5: Yeah, I think you're really hitting on something there with the spread of visual information because that's something we definitely saw last year in the states. Is a lot of people who were newer to protesting picking up on the visual cues that they saw from Hong Kong coverage and trying to replicate it. Um, And for a a lot of the time, it didn't actually work out that well. Like, (laughs) Like remember like the first few weeks in Portland, we would see people like carrying around pylons but not knowing, no, not really knowing what to do with them, just because they saw people do this before online, and then after a while, we started to see them slowly figure out how to actually extinguish tear gas canisters. Same <laughs> thing with like leaf blowers and stuff. We see like they first use the rhetoric, they first use kind of the aesthetics, and then slowly they learn the actual practical skills. Because um, you can't just learn something by watching it; you have to also kind of do it. I mean, you it's 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 trickier. You you sometimes can, but. You generally kind of have to practice the skill as well. We saw that a lot, and one thing that people never really learned how to do well, but they kept the rhetoric of it, is the whole like "be water" thing. That's something that no one really figured out. At least here in Portland, it (laughs) like it 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 would get chanted a lot. People would say it, but like it didn't actually do. You weren't actually doing anything. Um, And I think that is kind of like that is kind of the flip side of having. Something so reliant on like infographics and just like viral footage is that you'll think you're prepared for something because you've seen it, and then when you're actually doing the thing, you're like, "Oh, this is actually very different than sitting in my bed scrolling through Twitter." Uh, this is like it's a whole it's a whole different thing, um, but still it's in, it's still like incredibly useful, right? To, to have to have that base knowledge in the first place is very useful, but it, you have to remember like you you can't just think that you can watch it and then go do it immediately. And I was wondering, like, if, from from your perspective, when you saw stuff happening in the States uh, last year, and we saw a lot of, you know, like, a lot of, like, aesthetic mirrors of the Hong Kong protests, were there anything, was there anything that you think people really succeeded in? Uh, or was there stuff that you think people kind of tried to replicate but kind of failed at?
6: I mean, that's a really good point. And I think that kind of gets to what Chris was asking as well in terms of just, like, I feel like there had to be also the the... Strategic exchange to to match the visual exchange in, in terms of just like yeah, actually knowing how to get into formation because it's just like, um, yeah, like the with the putting up the tear gas with the pylons is just like you actually had to have like three or four dedicated people like one person to hold a pylon one person to have the water one person to like you know all these different things that really do need to be coordinated and then also like you said uh, practiced uh before you can get it right and um. I don't know. I mean, there. I, I think just so many of the tactics like, you know, stopping tear gas with umbrellas is not super effective, right? Because it's just like, first of all, the, the rounds are extremely, you know, they move very fast and they're very hot. And then they're, it's also not going to actually shield very much from you, right? So um, I think visually it was very striking and it, it it's very helpful in terms of surveillance. Um, but that was something that happened in Hong Kong and also happened over here that i saw that i was just like um that's not super useful (laughs) um but i think i I have been encouraging people to to bring those out more still umbrellas and stuff because i've heard in toronto at least that the cops are like using surveillance drones
5: yeah um umbrellas Mm -hmm. are are great against cameras and they do have a lot of advantages compared to hard shields in a lot of situations but, of course, when you're facing, like, heavy munition fire, then they're they're not as useful.
6: Yeah, and I saw, you know, like, I saw a lot of inventiveness with the heavier shields in Hong Kong in terms of, like, using plastic barricades, but then, you know, that was, that, that's not super portable, right? So then I, th- I saw a lot of people making them out of, like, those floating, you know, those things that help you float and swim, um, because they're super light, but then they also uh, reflect uh, tear gas very well, the canisters, huh. so... Um, I didn't see so much of that in the US. I saw people use more like big wooden boards and like, you know, uh, I don't know, street signs and stuff like that. And um, so that was, maybe that's just a difference in terms of like what material is available to you and stuff. But um, I think the, the emphasis on mobility was a lot more in Hong Kong rather than the US where it was just like the actual emphasis was on luring police to a location and then being able to quickly run away so that they're stretched so thin, right? Like that was the that was a Be Water tactic. But
5: Yeah, the, the states did not do that at all. You know, well I, I, I would
1: say like, okay, I, I don't think the people who like said be Water did that at all. But like I remember like the in, in in the beginning in Chicago, before anyone was coordinating anything, it was just a bunch of people running around. Like that actually did happen. Yes. Like like yeah. that was yeah, the police like in Chicago collapsed, and the reason they collapsed was that there's like, you know, there's just six hundred people just on every street corner.
5: There were absolutely a few cities where that did happen, and, um, but. Generally, from my experience, of, at least on parts of the West Coast, there was a lot of a lot a lot of chanting about bee water yeah. while you stand in front of a police station for six yeah. hours. <laughs> um, and there were
2: definitely actions where people did that, you know, and would would go and 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 you know get away with some mischief because they were willing to move quickly and not stick around. But yeah, I, there was a lot of chanting bee water while repeatedly <laughs> heading back to the same police station. Um, you know, I, I i wonder about that like cuz it seemed like like once the it seemed like
1: like once you were in cuz at the very early stages in the US like my impression of it was it was just like like it caught everyone off guard and it was just a bunch of random people and it's like they seemed to just like do it maybe maybe just by the fact that they they they, they were very coordinated and so it was it was decentralized just sort of just by the nature of the fact that it was just a bunch of random people but then when you started getting these sort of like, like you had, we had another phase in Chicago that was, it was like it worked really well, but it was there's sort of, there like a bunch of anti-statue protests, and it was like the anti-statue people would they would just like surround, uh, like a statue and they would just throw things at it, and that was very much more similar to Portland, I guess. And so I I, I don't know, part of me is wondering whether it was like there's something about the organizational structure that in the states where that where people that that like heavily favors getting a bunch of people to go to one place and sitting there in a way that sort of didn't happen in Hong Kong?
2: I, I think it was that you you there was a certain point in the protests in a number of U.S. cities where you still had intense interest in people being out in the streets, but you hadn't had, number one, there wasn't a, a necessarily a concerted, agreed-upon list of demands, but also there wasn't a clear understanding of how to achieve them. Like, you know, in Portland... There was a point where the hardcore folks, the folks showing up every night, pretty much were all in agreement that, like, yeah, we don't want any more cops. But there was also not a white agreement on like, well, how do we what what's the path to that? Is it is it showing up and trying to make their lives miserable every night? Like, is it there was kind of a there was a there was a point at which their motivation to be on the streets was there, but the understanding of like how to achieve the goals was not. And so folks were um, you would see kind of the same thing being done a few times without uh, without it necessarily making making progress. And eventually, you know, people did move on. But it was this this thing of like, I think what you need if you're going to actually force through significant changes is um, a continually evolving understanding of your goals and methods. Um, and that's it's a really hard like i'm saying this is what's necessary i have no idea how to do that when you've got this very decentralized large group of people out in the streets you don't have you know leaders or a central organization and in fact having those things is going to endanger people in the movement because that stuff always gets infiltrated you know or, yeah. or winds up to be in some other way problematic so it's kind of I'm I'm acknowledging this as a problem, and I don't want that to mean like I'm pointing at like activists in Portland or activists in wherever and saying, you dummies didn't figure it. No one's figured it out. We don't know. Like nobody knows how to do this yet because it, it hasn't been done. Um, but that's clearly where I think you can see that's where the problem is, is that you you get these situations where there's motivation. People are willing to be out in the streets, but there's also not – outside of be angry and in the streets, there's not necessarily a clear understanding of like, well, how, okay, how do we, what, what are we trying to achieve specifically? And how are we achieving it? Like, how are we furthering that golden tonight?
6: Yeah. Well, I'm not sure if, I mean, because eventually, you know, street fighting, I don't, not really like lost its luster, but people were just kind of like, what is this doing in, in Hong Kong yeah. as well? And um, it's, you know, eventually it stopped because all the, all the kids who were doing it were like traumatized or bodily you know exhaustion or mental exhaustion and all those different things where they, they were all arrested right So you know there's it, it just kind of petered out like that and, and I think the problem was that you know it, it was very anti CCP for, for most of it but then I think eventually it became just so anti police that um, it, I think a lot of people kind of uh, eventually lost sight of what yeah like you're saying the goal was or what what's the best way to achieve what we want. And if it was just continually attacking the police on the street, then it wasn't going to accomplish that. You know what I mean?
2: No, no, no. Yeah. yeah. And I don't want any of this to come you know, as like criticisms. It's more just like a, well, this, this didn't do it. You know, like there's still cops, right? Like if that's, the, if that is the goal and for some people, right. For the broader tens of millions of Americans in the streets, there was never that kind of a consensus. It was much more muddled, but the, the dedicated activists, there was a consensus, but it also didn't, it ain't done yet so i think there is like a there's a continuing question everybody needs to be asking themselves which is like well how do we get from a to b you know um, or a to z as the case may be
5: is there is there any um, uh places that people can go to learn more about this t- type of stuff online or any any like resources that you you would like to share
6: yeah i mean of course uh you know i'll plug Laosan in terms of uh our website you can go to uh and then all of our social media stuff like that um, I don't know yeah if, if folks are more interested in uh, w- we're trying to put together a uh, kind of non-status anti-militarist coalition soon um, and our first event is going to be hopefully in a month or so um, to, to try and provide some solutions to um, what we see as kind of like anti-war activism that is like it's just about kind of marching from from A to B and then holding PSL Signs and answer coalition <laughs> signs and stuff like that. So, uh, I guess I'll just pl- pre-plug that for now and keep an eye on that.
5: Great, yeah, and thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. Yes, thank you about very this much. Topic.
6: Yeah, thanks for the invite. Happy to be here.
1: This has been it could happen here, talking about a place where it did in fact happen, mm-hmm. and then yeah, it did. It didn't happen enough.
2: Yeah. yeah. And it didn't happen enough here either. And yeah. we have a lot of questions in common. Like, I hope nobody thinks when we say, like, we're going to talk about how to, you know, potentially come to agreements about a list of demands and even a general strike that we're saying, like, here's the solution to this. Um, I, I, I've said a couple of times, I think the the problem confronting is how, getting a mass movement to agree on a list of demands and then take mass concerted action to force them like, is a, is a, 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 cultural task, uh, probably exceeding in difficulty the moon landing. Um, so no, like, we're not, we're not coming here trying to say like here, but like, here's what everyone needs to do. It's more of like, well, this is a question we all need to be asking ourselves. And I think our role in that is to be asking that question of some people who have spent a lot of time trying to practically ask that question in another part of the world and learning what we can from that example, because um, we don't have a tremendous amount of time, so we should probably be studying.
5: Yep. You can find us on Twitter at Happen Here Pod and Cool Zone Media. You can listen to other episodes of It Could Happen Here um, five days a week, Monday through Friday, on this feed and other podcasts. You know where to find them. Find the Bastards' Worst Year Ever, that kind of stuff. Thank you for listening. We will, we will be back in the, next, in the next day or after the weekend, whenever this airs.
2: Allegedly.
5: Allegedly.
3: It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening.
0: If all that sounds too good to be true, it'll sound even better on the new Roku Pro Series. Your hearing isn't better. Your TV is. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit,